The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now, let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined with Clay Eels. He is a biographer, a journalist, an editor, and he is the author of this book, Steve Goodman, Facing the Music. It is now in its fifth printing, which I believe the one that I possess is the first edition. Great, great. (laughs) I'm surprised you can pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) It is a heavy book, and it's, it's, to me, it feels very complete. And to tell all the people out there, I know a lot of them are thinking, of course I know who Steve Goodman is, especially people who love great music. Steve Goodman was a a great songwriter, a great performer, and just an an all-around artist. And a lot of people would know some of the songs that he wrote, Um, not only that he recorded, but, but there were some famous recordings that other artists made, like City of New Orleans. You never even called me by name, uh, Banana Republic. You you could go on and on, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And many people think that these songs that they know so well were written by the performer when, in fact, they were written by Goodman. Right, right. So tell us, Clay, how did you first become aware of Steve Goodman? Well, back in the in the seventies, remember LPs? <laughs> we, you know, um, he was uh, among many people whose albums I had. Um, but where I really got riveted by him was in a public TV program called Soundstage, um, which uh, went national. It, it originated in Chicago, but it went national, and it was an hour of music um, nonstop. And one of the early soundstage programs featured Arlo Guthrie, Hoyt Axton, and Steve Goodman in Chicago, and it was called Arlo and Friends. And it's funny how on a little black and white TV set, you can get riveted to somebody's performance, but that's really the the first uh, time it really grabbed me that Steve was exceptional. Um, I used to, uh, I, I was living in Eugene at the time, but I would come home to Seattle and I would argue with a friend of mine about who was better, Steve Goodman or Jimmy Buffett, and we would put their albums on back and forth and say, well, you got to listen to this. No, you got to listen to that. And then I got to see him a couple of times in concert. Um, one was both times were in Eugene. One was in a huge basketball arena uh, where he's opening for Randy Newman in the fall of 1977. And then another was a solo show in a small venue called the Wow Hall uh, in the spring of 81. But all it took was for you to see him perform once and he'd get you. Um, and I, uh, you know, later on in, in uh, 1984, I was back up here in Seattle and editing a newspaper, which had an entertainment section. And Goodman died here in Seattle in September of 84. And I wrote an obituary, kind of a combination of obit and tribute on him, and I think that's where the seeds were really planted in my mind to do a book about him. But back in the seventies, um, he was so. Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, songwriting, uh, singing, guitar playing. You put them all together, and what Goodman talked about a lot was that he strove to be the best entertainer possible, and to put all those three elements together. And uh, um, he was so effective; he could write. Um, the best funny songs, the best love songs, the best topical some songs, and sometimes he would 
he would put them all together in one song. And I even uh, wooed my wife with his songs by putting uh, cassette tapes together with his songs and mailing them to her. And it must have worked. We're still we're still together. <laughs> it is so, interesting. a lot of different elements, you know, of of uh, just being aware of the music of the time and. And, you know, nobody would ever say that Steve Goodman was a household word. Um, he was known for others' versions of his songs and certainly should have been known for his own uh, entertaining ability, his performing ability. But he always kind of ran a little just below the surface of uh, cultural literacy, you know. And there are some great ironies in his story. Um, uh, that, that we can talk about in a little bit, but that, that might have made him a little more famous, if you will. But, you know, I the, the line I like to use is, why write the 50th book about Elvis? You know, I mean, it, it, to me, it seemed much more uh, substantial and, and uh, satisfying and inspirational to to do... Uh, a book on somebody who's worthy but hasn't had something written on them like that. So that's kind of the, in a nutshell, what propelled me into this project. How was it, do you think, how was it that Steve Goodman was so great at capturing these audiences that he performed in front of? Do you think that he learned to be such a great performer or do you think it was almost something that was innate with him? Well, it's probably a little of both, you know, the nature and nurture argument can be applied to anything. Um, and then you can lay on top of that, the, what the effect of his leukemia diagnosis was, you know, did that make him a better performer having death sitting on his shoulder with like, like it does not for most of the rest of us. Um, but I was determined to try to delve into that very question um, by interviewing a lot of people uh, to, to try to uh, try to bring that out. Particularly, you know, was was Steve Goodman Steve Goodman before he was diagnosed at age twenty with leukemia? Did he change somehow? And from a kid, he his his youngest days, he was music was a huge part of his life being a, a boy soprano in, in the synagogue. Um, and he would be wowing audiences then. Um, and, uh, he was the first born of two kids. Um, he was doted upon, um, his family was a big champion of him. I think that had a big part of it. He never was very tall. The, the tallest he ever got was five foot two. Um, and, you know, the cliches for that are, well, if you can't make it on your brawn, you have to make it on your wits. And he, his wit was, was razor sharp. And he, he, he was like a magnet. He would draw people to him in grade school and high school. Hillary Clinton, whom I talked with for the book, she was a high school classmate of him. And she also was, uh, quite magnetic in their, high school of 4,000 students in suburban Chicago. And uh, um, so she kind of knew that Steve's personality would draw people in. And, and the thing is, he, music was from the beginning. It, it was just part of his, it was like another limb of his body to have his guitar with him all the time. Um, and so, yeah, there were some innate parts of him, but I also think it was a lot of uh, the the environment in which he grew up. He had to had to shine in ways that were non traditional. You know, a short guy has has trouble doing that unless unless he can, um, you know, shine with with his personality, and and he also threw himself into music, all kinds of music. He, he became kind of an encyclopedia. Uh, he, he, this, this allowed him to not only appreciate, but to perform songs by other people his whole life. And, uh, and he, and he, he had a, a he, he clearly was a genius in many ways. He wasn't a great student in school, 
but that's because he was cutting classes to do musical things mostly. And he, the one of the great quotes I got about his mental acuity was that he had a phonographic memory, which uh, is is to mean that that he could hear something once and then he could sing it and play it again right away. He 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 loved being in the know about music and then being able to share it with others. And that just snowballed as he became a young adult. And, uh, and that became his, his life's work, his dream. Uh, in fact, while his parents wanted him to become a doctor and he was going to school into college, two different colleges, um, it was in that time when he was diagnosed with leukemia and this doctor told him basically, you can't keep all of this up, you know, studying music, staying up all night, you got to make a choice. And he chose music. This is perhaps a question you've gotten tired of answering, but uh, is there a Steve Goodman song that to you is the most meaningful? Oh boy, so many of them are meaningful in so many ways. Um, I'm going to pick a song to describe here that many people don't know, um, and that is Videotape. And what I love about the song Videotape is that it covers the bases that we talked about earlier about about uh, being uh, a funny song and a social commentary song, but it's also a love song, it, and uh, and it's very cleverly written. It's uh, you know, and it could apply to today. You know, even though it was written in 1977, it's a three verse song. The first verse he talks about the past and. Uh, in the second verse, he talks about the future. So, um, you know, the, the past verse is, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could replay all the good parts of our past on videotape? And the and the second verse is about the future. Could we dodge the Grim Reaper? <laughs> Which was pertinent for him. Of course, he didn't, he, he was not uh, advertising his leukemia, but you certainly found mortality a lot in his song lyrics lots of references to it. And then the truly delicious part is the third verse, which if you're following along, it's obvious what the third verse is about. The past, the future, well, the third verse has to be the present. And it just ends with that delicious line of, I know it'll all make sense if you love me in the present tense. And then he goes back to repeat the first verse, first verse as if uh, as if the song itself were on videotape. I just find that all very clever and very uh, poignant and pertinent at the same time. And uh, many of his other songs touch the similar kinds of themes. Um, some people, some people identify him with baseball so much because of his Chicago Cubs songs and the. The consummate baseball song, the best one ever written, is A Dying Cub Fan's Last Request. Um, and that has humor and social comment, but it also is, is really a love song to the Cubs. I could go on. There are many other songs, but those are a couple. <laughs> I recall getting to interview on this show Gordon Lightfoot, and he was talking about how Steve Goodman would be in his opinion, one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived. And you, you mentioned all of these interviews that you did for the book. I mean, there were more than a thousand, but mm -hmm. what songwriter would you say in your experience was the most praising of, of Steve Goodman's ability to write these great songs? I don't know if there's a most, but one that I would pick out would be Chris Christopherson. He, uh, he was not only uh, a great songwriter himself, is a great songwriter himself, but uh, he was able to spot others who had that ability. And without Chris Christopherson, and ironically, another great songwriter, Paul Anka, we would probably not know about Steve Goodman. There's a, I think the, the story of the book is how Goodman was discovered so to speak, by those two in Chicago. But Chris was quite articulate in 
talking to me about uh, Steve's songwriting ability uh, he, that they that 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 they just the, the, that his songs were so down to earth and appealed to you right away. Uh, these weren't um, the lyrics were not. Uh, ethereal or, or heavily symbolic, you know, they were quite literal and you could get the meaning of them right away. And I think that appealed to Chris quite a bit. I would say one of the most famous country songs of all time, which, I mean, in addition to hearing it on jukeboxes and on the radio, if you, if somebody is playing at a bar, they yeah. have to be able to play. You never even called me by my name. And uh, David Allen Coe, actually, at the end there, he mentions the name of Steve Goodman. Yep. Yeah. You were does. able. What's that? He does. Yeah. Uh, I was able to track him down just yeah. like many other performers. And, you know, the, one of the delights of this book was that Goodman had been gone for uh, 15 to 20 years at the time that I got to talk to all of these people, famous and not famous. And so for them, they were in a more reflective part of their life, looking back on somebody who meant something to them. And David Allen Coe certainly was uh, in that category. But even in interviewing David Allen Coe um, I, himself, I, I could not get him to admit the truth of the situation. You know, everybody knows <laughs> that song, uh, You Never Even Call Me By My Name. Uh, for the David Allen Coe version, which was a big hit in 1975, and it continues to be. Um, and in the song, there's a recitation where he says, well, my friend Steve Goodman wrote that song, but I told him it was not the ultimate country and Western song. And, I, and, and he takes credit for telling him to write the last verse of the song, which is a lie. <laughs> it's total fake news, you know, if you want to use that phrase these days. Um, Goodman wrote that song with John Prine in a hotel room in New York in 1971. And he, he uh, then put it on his first album, which came out in November of 71. And shortly after that, he... Uh, was prodded by a friend named Albert Williams in Chicago, uh, who said that it needed something more. It needed the cliches uh, of a country song. And Steve came up with mother trucks, prison train farms, and put them all in that uh, culminating verse that is is so well known. But the deal was, he he added that verse to the song after his version of the song came out on record. And so the only way that you got to hear that version of the song was to see Steve in concert. Well, three years later, along comes David Allen Coe, and he likes the song, and he puts it on the record. But he says that it was he who instigated that final verse. And and not only <laughs> I mean, it's, this is not just a guy talking in an interview. He put it in the song. It's a part of the song and and taking credit. But then his manager and others told him, wait a minute, Steve, don't you realize that this is one of the first times that a songwriter or a performer has uh, performed a song and named a songwriter inside that very song? He said, you know, countless times every day, your name is going out there into the universe. And so Steve sort of changed his mind. He decided not to be angry about it. And, and then you could tell in s subsequent interviews how, uh, I mean, you, he once said that David Allen Coe wrote, uh, performed the full length Technicolor version. <laughs> and, and he would thanked David Allen Coe for the favor of, of that. But, um, that was one of my aims in the book, you know, I'm a journalist from way back, a newspaper guy, and uh, I wanted to make sure to, um, to, to, to tell the truth about things that had become apocryphal about Steve Goodman. And this was certainly one of them. It was a great story to be able to, to, to tell truthfully. And, uh, and 
you know, you can understand Steve's position in that circumstance. You know, he he was not the household word. And here's David Allen Coe becoming this well-known country star on the basis of that and several other songs. But that's really his signature song, the one that he sort of appropriated from Steve. And so, you know, this is another case of in several that, that you can cite with Goodman where where he didn't quite grab the brass ring of fame, you know, and others took it from him in some sense. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded that my one of my bosses back in the uh, back in the 90s, when I, I was talking about doing a book about Goodman, he was telling a friend of his, he said, the, the thing you got to understand about Clay is that he wants to write about the tragically nearly famous. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's some satisfaction in doing that. Yeah, I, I, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I frequently feel like a, a, a lover of, um, I don't know, the underappreciated well, one phrase I used in the introduction to the book that I think is pretty pertinent is that fame is not a, a measure of success. Um, we tend to think it is, but it's, you know, we, we tend to equate the two. But to me, Goodman is a great example of how somebody can be a success, but not necessarily be the household word. And, uh, and, you know, there are millions of people out there who are Goodman people. You just have to find them. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this. And we kind of hinted at this earlier in the interview. Uh, what do you think it was that maybe didn't push him into the level of stardom that um, somebody like John Prine or Jimmy Buffett or Bob Dylan you know, wh why do you think Steve Goodman didn't, isn't thought of, I mean, I, I don't know, in some people's mind, like Gordon Lightfoot, they would say, what are you nuts? Steve yeah. Goodman <laughs> is right up there. That's right. But why didn't he get that level of fame, I guess, is the question. Well, there are lots of answers to that. One is just physically, he was not a matinee idol. You know, five foot two, you don't, uh, you, you're not a magazine cover. Um uh, he, he was, um, some people thought that he was too, uh, funny and lighthearted, uh, to become, uh, seen as a cool superstar. Um, and there's a great sort of a, uh, an example of that, that you just mentioned in, in, in your list of, of musicians that you mentioned, John Prine, um, we would not know about John Prine today if not for Steve Goodman. And again, it goes back to that story and the, the, the quintessential story of, of Goodman being discovered by Christofferson and Paul Anka, because that story includes the fact that when, when Christofferson in a, in a middle of the night uh, breakfast at Paul Anka's Chicago hotel room uh, had Goodman play the song, Would You Like to Learn to Dance for Paul Anka? Um, Paul Anka said to Goodman, how would you like a plane ticket to New York? Basically, how would you like the opportunity to, uh, to come and do a record contract? And put yourself in that situation if you were Steve Goodman. Here you are. You're surrounded by not only Christofferson and Anka, but several other luminaries in this room. Samantha Egger, Melvin Van Peebles. Uh, and and Paul Anka says, how would you like a plane ticket to New York? You, you'd probably say, gee, thank you, Mr. Anka. I'd love the opportunity. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. But that's not what Goodman said. He said, if you think I'm good, you got to hear my friend John Prine. And so he took this whole entourage to see John Prine at a tiny club in Chicago called the Earl of Old Town the next night. And uh, they listened to Prine go through his set after hours. And uh, 
then Christofferson leans over to Paul Anka and says, well, I guess you're going to have to buy two tickets to New York. <laughs> and, and, and the great irony is that Prine was never the great performer that Steve was. Steve was just born for the stage. He was, he, he, you know, you, you felt like he was singing just to you, playing for you. I mean, he had this way of engaging, inspiring the audience. Prine was not, didn't, didn't ever have that kind of a gift. And, and he had this gravelly voice and his stage manner, manner. Um, I mean, it was, no, I'm not trying to run Prine down, but as a stage performer, uh, he, he, he didn't hold a candle to Goodman. And yet here Goodman gives a chance to Prine and he zooms ahead of Goodman. He gets the record contract first. He, he, um, his records sell much more than Goodman. Um, they are co-billed for years, but it's always Goodman opening for Prine, you know? And, and to me, this, this story is the ultimate act of generosity that, that Goodman through his honesty and his just, just, uh, self-awareness of, of, uh, of just trying to be, not pretentious, launched somebody ahead of him. Same is true for Buffett, in a sense. Um, Buffett was a nobody when Goodman already had had a couple of albums out, and Buffett came to Chicago uh, to perform at a small club, and he, he had to stay on Steve Goodman's couch. He didn't have the money. He had to <laughs> borrow money from him to get bus fare to go to his next gig. Um, and it was almost like Goodman and Buffett are driving down the highway and and Goodman is ahead of him, but but Buffett comes out in the passing lane and just zooms ahead. And you know, uh he, Buffett learned a lot of stagecraft from Steve Goodman. He would tell you that. He told me that. Um the song Banana Republics, um, uh, many people think is the ultimate Jimmy Buffett song. Well, Steve Goodman wrote it. Jimmy Buffett told me it was he <laughs> that he should have written it, you know. I mean, um there's there's a lot of uh, just a generosity and a humility about Goodman that is tremendously appealing. And generosity and humility don't always send you to the top of the success ladder. You mentioned that song, Banana Republics. And I have seen many, many people, like on online forums, for example, when people say, you know, what what was Jimmy Buffett's masterpiece that he wrote? And people will say that. They will say, Banana Republics. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they were great friends. Um, they co-wrote several songs, Door Number 3 and, and uh, This Hotel Room. There, there, no, This Hotel was a Goodman song, but Buffett covered it. But uh, he played on Buffett's albums. Uh, they, were, they were friends. And, and it's interesting that the song Banana Republics the Buffett version is on the same Buffett album as Margaritaville, which is sort of Jimmy Buffett's city of New Orleans. It's his signature song, but Buffett got the fame for the hit on his own song of Margaritaville. Whereas the fame for Steve Goodman on city of New Orleans came from the hit version by Arlo Guthrie. And, uh, you know, there again is another circumstance where, of course, Steve would have loved to have the hit himself, but, you know, as he, he turned it into a joke, you know, at his concerts when he would introduce City of New Orleans, he would say, Arlo Guthrie's paying my rent. <laughs> <laughs> well, so many people love that that recording, Arlo Guthrie. City of New Orleans, written by Steve Goodman. And uh, there there are some great interpretations that singers have done throughout the years. Who would you say has done the best job, the best job at interpreting Steve Goodman? Well, 
<laughs> there are many. But although I got to tell you, you know, I go to a fair number of musical performances. I used to, you know, before the virus. Um, and my wife will confirm this, you know, I'll come back from something or right at the end of a, a show or a concert or a set or whatever. And I'll end up saying, you know, they were good, but <laughs> there's always a but, you know, I, and, True. and and it's not that I have this imaginary kind of uh, hero worship. It, you know, it's it's evident. And I've got hundreds of concert tapes of Goodman. Thank goodness for those people who put cassette recorders down by their feet at concerts, you mm. know, because a lot of the quotes from Goodman in the book come from those concert tapes. But anyway, um, there was there was nobody who came close to Goodman. But interpreting his songs, um, I don't think it's a bad choice to to go with Arlo Guthrie's version of City of New Orleans. It's quite different from Steve's. If you compare the two, they're, they're starkly different. Steve's version is more, it's almost, it's faster and it's more upbeat. And uh, Steve would say it sounds more like a train moving along. Um, and Arlo's, uh, as Steve put it, Arlo's version, uh, Arlo slowed it down so you could hear the words. And it was fascinating to interview Arlo. He's uh, out of my 1,100 interviews for the book, Arlo's my favorite. I mean, it was a fascinating two and a half hours I had at a Mexican restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> talking with Arlo and going over fine details of things that that he was not used to talking about in other circumstances. People just graze the surface and go with his stage story about the city of New Orleans. But um one of the things Arlo told me was that they tried at least six times different ways to record City of New Orleans, you know, different tempos and uh, accompaniments. And they were having a hard time figuring out the right one. And then they finally figured out that um, this, this more simple one that has um, has has a uh, accordion and uh in the background you, you wouldn't think that a, a hit song would have accordion on it but it just it slowed down um it's actually physically slowed down the tape was slowed down slightly to get it to the right uh tempo and um and to have sort of this angelic choir in the background on the chorus um really t turned it into sort of a a, a mythic song you know, and Arlo said to me that, you know, after that song came out, you know, you, it's it's funny, you're talking about interpretation. Without Arlo Guthrie, we probably wouldn't know about Steve Goodman, in a sense. True. But without Steve Goodman, we wouldn't know about Arlo Guthrie in the <laughs> mainstream sense, because Arlo was just this hippie guy, you know, Alice's Restaurant. He was in Woodstock coming into Los Angeles, but that was not mainstream at the time. City of New Orleans put him on the mainstream map. And he said, he said, now I'm a train guy, <laughs> which really broadened his appeal. And it still does to this day. He just recently announced that he's not going to be performing anymore. He kind of yeah. retired from that a couple months ago. But City of New Orleans has been his, his mainstream claim to fame. And while the song as he performed it is quite different from Goodman's. I think it's quite effect, affecting. I mean, when in the fall of 72, any of us who were around then, you couldn't escape it. It was on the radio everywhere. And, and it, you mentioned that there are lots of interpretations of that song. It's very telling that most of the people who interpret the song interpreted Arlo's way, not Steve's way. Yeah. Arlo changed a few of the words, but the things, the thing that he did most musically to change it and that probably provided the hook in the song to give it the, the, the hit status is in the chorus where in the chorus, Goodman saying, I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. Arlo would hit that seventh chord and he would go, I'll be gone 500 miles. And that there's something about that that sticks in your head. 
um, it's, it's a small change. You know, Arlo told me, he said, that's all I did. I just changed that one chord, but it, it, it moved a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and it, in my opinion, it has just one of the greatest lines. I mean, there's a, a lot of great lines in the song city of new Orleans. One time I was called by uh, the disc jockey, Scott Shannon, mm-hmm. and talk about something that will, will make you wake up quickly. He said, do you have a moment in just a second to go on national radio? <laughs> and I said, sure. And it just came, it came to me in a second. Mm-hmm. He introduced me. He said, you're on. And I said, good morning, America. How are you? <laughs> it just came to me. And that's right. <laughs> I love that line. And, you know, and I'd like to talk a little bit since we were, we were discussing the Steve Goodman version of that song mm-hmm. and when you go and you listen to Steve Goodman's versions of some of these songs, his voice, at least to me, is something that just stands out. I mean, he has an unusual voice, I think, but he had this ability to both be really romantic or sentimental in a song like California Promises, but also he could be really, really humorous. But there was something about his voice that I think is just so comfortable. It's relatable in some way. What do you think, or how would you describe the the vocal ability of Steve Goodman? Well, nobody would call him a crooner, or or would or would say, you know, he had. I mean, and this is kind of ironic because of his childhood status as a boy soprano singer in in countless bar mitzvahs on Saturday mornings. He was the star, and uh, but you know, for all men, our voice changes around <laughs> around uh, puberty, and and uh, certainly did for him, and it lowered quite a bit. But his voice has an edge to it. There's a, there's a, I guess that's the best word that I would use to describe this edge that kind of reaches out and grabs you. Um, there's a a guy who taught him guitar in his freshman year in high school and he said that steve had a voice that brought you to the music and it's 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 something there's a familiarity about it there's a uh, a warmth to it um very you know if you think about it very few people or entertainers um automatically have this quality of having a smile in their voice. Um, and I think there is a smile in Steve's voice that goes along with that edge that even when he's singing a sad song, you can hear that, that element, um, and, and that edge. And yeah, I, I, that's about the best I can do to describe it. You got, I mean, it'd be great to, to, to just listen to some of the time he, he was, I mean, he was on pitch. He was quite, um, facile. He, he could go into falsetto. (laughs) He, he, um, and, and some of his songs, it's, it's like the quieter songs. He could turn an audience into pin drop silence. Um, because of that voice uh you know there there are many examples to cite but one might be the song that he wrote about his dad after his dad died called my old man and the you know that's pin drop silence stuff (laughs) as well as inducing tears (laughs) something that i've noticed just digging and and listening through the the catalog of Steve Goodman, more so I think than most singer songwriters of his type, Steve would perform material he didn't write. You know, and it, it's so interesting to listen to some of his interpretations. And he did everything from country music like Hank Williams tunes, oldies songs, American <laughs> standards, jazz, even you know. Why do you think he did that, and where do you think he really shined? Was there a recording that you think this was especially good? Oh, my. Um, 
well, where did this come from was growing up in Chicago. He he said this repeatedly, that um, if you grew up in Chicago and were interested in music, that there were there was just a great kaleidoscope of radio stations to learn all all forms of music, whether whether it's barn dance, uh, you know, hillbilly music to blues, uh, and artists all over the spectrum. And so I think that's you know it helped that that's where he grew up. Um, he also I'm going to go back to this notion of generosity and humility. Um, he, you know, to to a fault, was somebody who would be a champion of other people, other musicians, and and part of doing that was to be singing their songs. Some of the songs that he did of others wouldn't have had such a broad audience if not for him. Um, and I think he saw a commonality. It's that human interest of, well, gee, you know. If I don't do that for other people, others won't do it for me. Um, but he was just genuinely interested in all these forms of music. He, 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 when he finally was able to afford a house to buy in, uh, in, in 1976, it was in Evanston outside of Chicago. And it was this big, big old three-story house. And the full third floor was his music room. And he had thousands of record albums and he would, anybody you would invite up there, he, it was a constant session of listen to this, listen to this, you got to hear this, you got to hear that. And, and um, he, he, he loved other people's music. Um, Bonnie Raitt told me he was, he was an impish jukebox. You know, you just push the button and some, and a song would come out. He, he could, play anybody under the table with his knowledge of of all of these different songs and so it, it as you say it makes sense that uh some of his recordings of other people's songs are are just treasures and probably the the, the one that i would recommend the most that by far is the the best studio recording that steve ever made i believe is is michael smith's the dutchman which came out on the somebody else's troubles album. Um, and that song is, and it's a brilliant song. And it's, it's about two old people who were twice as old as Steve would ever get in his life. I mean, it was tremendously poignant at the time, even if you didn't know about his leukemia, but even, but but especially afterward, um, that that I mean, it's not just revering other songwriters, but he revered older generations. He, Martin Bogan and Armstrong, the African American string band, he was a champion of, and he produced an album of their songs. Uh, Jethro Burns, the half of Jomer, Homer and Jethro, that uh, who survived Homer's death, and and. Jethro went on the road with Steve for years, and Jethro was his, was Steve's dad's age. Uh, he was a mandolin genius, and he would showcase Jethro as a star. Um, and so, for him to have, write this or to perform this affecting song about two older people, one of whom is drifting into what we would call dementia or Alzheimer's today, and 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 his wife caring for him is just tremendously affecting. And and Goodman himself said that the Dutchman is the song that people talk about when they talk about me. And and we're talking about live performance as well as studio recording. I mean, we know so many musicians from their recordings but the best steve was live steve no question and for years he would refuse to put out a live album because he said why do you want to hear all of that applause that's just a waste of time you know but finally live recordings of steve came out uh shortly before he died and then certainly afterward as well and you can see that and dutchman is right up there among those um uh, those songs you go on youtube and uh you know just search for steve goodman and the dutchman 
and you'll find this just stunning version of the Dutchman in, from 1982 from the Austin City Limits Down Home Country Music Show with Jethro Burns backing him up. And that's just four minutes of heaven right there. <laughs> yes, yeah, some of the the live records, the live recordings of Steve Goodman are just they're just wonderful to listen to. So, if you could, if it was possible. To ask Steve Goodman some question for this biography, what would you ask him? <laughs> I'm laughing because because that's that's almost an impossible hmm. question to answer. Um, you know, I've had dreams uh, where I'm about to interview him, hmm. uh, but it slips away somehow. <laughs> he died in '84, and I started work on the book in in. Oh, 97 or 98, depending on where you want to draw the line. <sighs> and, and so I was not able to talk with him. Um, certainly I would want to delve into the topic of mortality. And, and, and I mean, think about it. Think what you were doing when you were 20 years old. Um, anybody listening to this, what you were doing when you're 20 years old, I mean, most people are not dealing with a death sentence on their shoulder. And, and, and so we don't know what that's like. We, we, we live as if we're not going to die. Mm -hmm. And, and, and certainly we know it, but we kind of push it aside. We don't, we don't think about it much. And Steve didn't have that choice. And um, I think he, you know, the, the, the cliche is that he lived more life in his 36 years than any of the rest of us will if we live twice that long. And mm -hmm. uh, um, so, you know, the lessons are there to in engage and inspire and connect with people and, and not waste the time that's so precious that we all have. And, and, you know, this came out in his song lyrics and it came out in his interviews, particularly after he was so-called outed uh, for his leukemia in 82 after he relapsed. Um, but, but I would think that that would be, you know, if I only had a limited amount of time to talk to him uh, that I'd want to delve into that area. Um, <laughs> One of, I mean, I've had several of these dreams. It doesn't happen all the time, but they're so vivid. One one dream I had, uh, it was about a couple of years ago, where I'm sitting in a hotel lobby, and there's a staircase that comes down to the lobby, and then over in the corner there's a staircase that goes down into the basement where there's a restaurant. And I'm sitting in the hotel lobby, and I'm waiting for Steve because I'm going to have an interview with him, and it's set up. And Steve walks down the stairs and comes over to me and he says, I'll be with you in a minute. And he walks over to the other stairway and goes downstairs and I never see him again. <laughs> it's like this elusive, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, um, and, and then when you look at the size of the book that resulted, I had no idea it was going to be 800 pages and <laughs> 300,000 words and four pounds. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's people compare it to a phone book and, and they say, well, how can, how can you do that? You know, many other people more famous don't have books like that. And I, and I just part of it's interesting that you ask about what would you, ask him in an interview because interviews were really the 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 kind of the heart and soul of my effort in this book i mean there was a lot of i mean i've got probably 2000 newspaper clippings and so forth about goodman lots of physical material but what i wanted to do was to elicit his story through through new interviews with people who knew him and and I, it was tremendously rewarding, not only for the material for the book, but also just interpersonally to to have. I mean, I I can't tell you, I can't can't begin to describe the 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 meaningfulness of the friendships that have come from this, and 
And I just think that these interviews are kind of a, they're kind of emblematic of the message of the book and the message of Steve Goodman's life, which was, uh, we're not here to be hermits. We're supposed to, we're supposed to connect with people and engage with people and inspire people. And, and that's what he did. That's just what he did. He was, you know, you, if you look up gregarious in the dictionary, there's Steve Goodman. <laughs> what does Steve Goodman mean to you? Well, a lot of what I just said applies to that, but I, I guess I could, I could cite the last song on the last album that was released before he died. And it's a song that if anybody's a Goodman fan, they probably know it pretty well. It's a seven minute song, which is unusually long for, for, for any song. Um, but it's called You Better Get It While You Can. Mm-hmm. And supposedly it's a tribute to Carl Martin, the, the Martin of Martin Bogan and Armstrong, the, the string band I alluded to, um, and that he revered. And yet Steve is singing about himself. And when the refrain of the song, you better get it while you can, I don't think, I don't look at it in terms of acquire, you know, get, acquire. I look at it in terms of, of get it like understand it um and and the chorus is is haunting and it's and it's very meaningful and jaunty at the same time and 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 it's it's, if you wait too long it'll all be gone and you'll be sorry then it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor it's the same for a woman or a man from the cradle to the crypt it's a mighty short trip so you better get it while you can you know live life while you can. Um, I guess that's what Steve Goodman means to me. Um, you know, I, I, there was, there was a time when I, uh, when I, I quit journalism after 15 years and working for four different papers and I decided to go be a high school teacher of journalism and that didn't last very long. But during the course of that, I was student teaching at a high school and the English teacher I was working with um, had me teaching a unit on biography. And I read a book about biography that had this pretty potent um, uh, insight to it, which was if you're writing a biography about somebody, you better like that person because you're going to be living with that person for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I found that to be the case. You know, this is this is the project of my life. Um, I, it's, I mean, I've done a lot of different other publications, projects, and other kinds of projects. And just, I've, I've been so fortunate to have a lot of diverse things going on. But this is clearly the biggest thing I ever have done. And, and, and that song, You Better Get It While You Can, it, it's, it's, pertinent to the book itself. You know, you better do it while you can. You better write that book while you can. Um, and, and, it, and, and it wasn't some piece of cake either. I mean, when I interviewed, typically when I would interview anybody, uh, I'd get to the end of the interview, I'd be packing up my stuff and saying, thank you. And they'd say, well, you can't just interview me. You've got to interview X, Y, and Z. And I just followed down all, all of those leads, you know, knocked on door number three. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they kept leading me to people and they kept leading me to people. And, and uh, it was, it, it was a fascinating experience, but to, to, to put all of that stuff together in one place to try to, even, even in, it doesn't matter if it's an 80 page book or an 800 page book to, to encapsulate somebody's life in a book. Yeah. I mean, Talk about a heavy responsibility on your shoulders, and you know, are you, are you know, if you you have ten different people writing a biography on Paul Leslie, you're going to get ten different Paul Leslie biographies, you know, because everybody's going to approach it a little bit differently. And so, I knew that there weren't going to be ten books on Steve Goodman. I knew that this is probably going to be the only one. And so I better do it right. And so what is doing it right? I thought, well, doing it comprehensively. And, you know, I mean, 
it can be a challenge for your marriage. <laughs> it can be a challenge financially. I mean, uh, uh, I was six years into the project or let's see. Yeah, I was four years into the project and thought I was going to be able to finish it up in another two. And then my mom had strokes and went into the nursing home that's across the street. And so that extended longer. And, um, but you got to do it while you can. Mm. Um, and so I guess that's as good an answer as any to what does Steve Goodman mean to me? It's, a, it's just an example of our common humanity and how we're all here for only a limited period of time. And what are you going to do with that time? Hmm. <laughs> you're doing this, the same kind of thing with your, your show, you know, you're racking up uh, countless numbers of interviewees. You know, I, I know that, that, uh, that that is something that's meaningful to you, but, but you didn't know you were going to do that from the very beginning. I'm sure. I mean, you, you wouldn't have been able to put that list together at the very beginning. These things evolve and, uh, and, and you, you, you find deeper meaning in them as, as you pursue them. That is very true. Absolutely. You understand me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you that this book I'm holding up here, Steve Goodman facing the music and, um, it's got a preface by the late Studs Terkel, which is interesting. A forward by Arlo Guthrie. There's also this version that I have. It has some recordings, some tributes. for All of the printings do. Um, after the second printing, starting with the third printing, my publisher decided not to uh, insert a CD in the book and thought it would be less expensive and equally effective and uh, appealing to the online audience to have those bonus tracks be available in an on- online download opportunity. And so those are there. And that's another, if, if I could just go for another half minute or so, the, that's another tribute to Goodman. These tracks are songs about Steve Goodman or that mention him. And I didn't know that they were there. And I kept finding out about these when I would interview. And I thought, well, I'll mention them in the back of the book. But then I got to the point where there were 25 of them. And I <laughs> thought, geez, these gotta, they have to be a part of the book. And so my publisher allowed me to have a CD in the back of the book. And all of the, all of the song writers, performers of these songs gave me the tracks. That's how much they loved Steve Goodman. and. So it's another example of of how there are Goodman people out there and and people who largely are unsung and yet this book kind of gives them a little bit of of notoriety. It's it's kind of nice. It's a nice aspect of it. Well, on the note of tribute, I warned you about this, but uh, <laughs> you don't have to. I, I'm not putting anybody on the spot here, but <laughs> even if just a line, would you like to s- sing? Uh, of Steve Goodman's song. Well, I knew this was coming. Um, <laughs> one thing, you know, when I when I've done book events and I've done them all over the country: New York, Philly, DC, Boston, jeez, uh, uh, Chicago, several times, uh, down in California, here in Seattle, certainly, and over time. And and the the cool thing is that there are musicians all over who know Goodman songs and are are willing to come out of the goodness of their heart to perform. And so I've been able to enlist different musicians in different cities to come and play for me at at my events. And they, so it's not just a book event with a guy reading from a book and then answering questions, but you get to hear the songs that we're talking about and get to sing along. Well, one of the more popular songs of Goodman's, particularly for audiences that are attuned to baseball is a dying cub fans last request but that's a six and a half minute song and it's very very word intensive and there are not that many musicians out there who know the full lyrics to that song and so what i've taken to doing is to sing that song myself for people at those shows and and the musicians are willing to play the guitar background but uh um, it's basically a talking blues, so it's not entirely a sung song. So I can I can get away with it. <laughs> but I'd be happy to 
give that a shot here if you want. Um, uh, but please uh, go to YouTube and find Steve Goodman singing it himself. You know, I mean, this song is redolent with the theme of mortality. Mm. And, you know, he has a, he has a, a good uh, gallows humor that is exhibited in this song. Okay. Um, by the shores of old Lake Michigan, where the hawk winds blow so cold, an old cub fan lay dying in his midnight hour, the toll. And around his bed, his friends had all gathered, for they knew his time was short. On his head, they placed a hat from his all-time favorite sport. He said, it's late, it's getting dark in here, and I know it's time to go. But before I leave the lineup, there's just one thing I gotta know. And then there's the singing part of the song. Do they still play the blues in Chicago when baseball sees and rolls around? When the snow melts away, do the cubbies still play in their ivy-covered burial ground? When I was a boy, they were my pride and joy, but now they only bring fatigue to the home of the brave, the land of the free, and the doormat of the National League. He said, you know, the law of averages says that anything will happen that can, but the last time the Cubs won the National League pennant was the year we dropped the bomb on Japan. Oh, the Cubs, the Cubs, they made me a criminal. Stole my youth from me. That's the truth. I'd forsake my teachers to go sit in the bleachers in flagrant truancy. And then one thing led to another, and soon I discovered alcohol, gambling, dope, football, hockey, lacrosse, women, but what do you expect when you raise up a young boy's hopes and then crush them like so many paper beer cups year after year after year after year after year after year after year till those like so much popcorn beneath the L tracks for the pigeons to eat before I go to my eternal rest. So with, if you have your pencils and your scorecards ready, I'll read you my last request. Give me a double header funeral at Wrigley field on some sunny weekend day, no lights. And the organist play the national anthem and then a little na na na, hey, 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 goodbye. I have six bullpen pitchers carry my coffin in, have six groundskeepers clear my path, have the umpires bark me out at every base in all of their holy wrath. It's a beautiful day for a funeral. Hey, Ernie, and that's Ernie Banks. Hey, Ernie, let's play too. And somebody go back and get Jack Brickhouse to come and conduct one more interview. Have all the cubbies run right out into the middle of the field. Have Keith Moreland drop a routine fly. Give no everybody problem. two sacks of peanuts and a frosty malt, and then I'll be ready to die. And build a bonfire at home plate out of your Louisville Slugger baseball bats and toss my coffin in. And let my ashes blow in the beautiful snow of the prevailing 30-mile-an-hour southwest winds. And as my final remains go walking over the left-field fence, we'll bid the bleacher bums adieu. And I will come to my final resting place out on Waveland Avenue. Well, the dying fan's friends told him to stop it, cut it out. You know, that's an awful shame. But he whispered, don't cry. We'll meet by and by in that heavenly hall of fame. I've got season's tickets to watch the angels now, so that's just what I'm gonna do. But you here, the living, you're stuck with the Cubs, so it's me who feels sorry for you. <laughs> and don't play that lonesome loser's tune, that's the one I love the best. And he closed his eyes and he slipped away. And Paul, it was the dying Cub fan's last request. So here it is. Do they still play the blues in Chicago when baseball sees and rolls around? When the snow melts away, do the Cubbies still play in their ivy-covered burial ground? When I was a boy, they were my pride and joy, but now they only bring fatigue to the home of the brave, the land of the free, and the doormat of the National League. <laughs> you survived that. <laughs>
Well, Clay, thank you very much. As Steve uh, Goodman said at one concert, they're going to have to get out the scissors on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody can go to clayeels.com. It's E-A-L-S, clayeels.com. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, Paul, and uh, good luck in your future endeavors. You're racking up an interview list that almost looks like mine. There's way <laughs> too many names on it. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, and I appreciate the book. You're welcome. <laughs> Goodbye.